Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I'll kind of step into whatever you want me to do. So. <laughs> Uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, associate professor at the Kerrig Institute, and teaching for Rocky Mountain University this quarter. Nice. All right. Uh, everyone, our show today is going to be about goal setting. Um, so much of what we talk about, whether it's you know programming or anything else, dietary changes, it all comes down to somebody's goals. So I, we thought we would share some stuff about how professionals go about goal setting, right? Whether it's clinical or coaches or, or whatever. Uh, before that, a little bit of mail and news, um, Iron Radio general news. We are doing that contest. I guess it's more of a giveaway. Uh, Phil had a bunch of cool T-shirts printed up, and if people are making comments on our YouTube taste tests and an iTunes review, I'm I'm recording those addresses. Right, I'll send you a T-shirt. Yeah, we had one guy. I don't remember his name. Uh, that did already enter in and get his T-shirt. So, oh good. I was trying to scroll, I was trying to scroll down here and figure out his name. But uh, was that Jason? It might have been. Okay, that's why I'm looking it up. Okay. So, uh, Jason made a donation actually even before the yes, fall fund started. Donation. Too. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So thank yeah. you, Jason. Cool stuff. Um, everybody have a little bit of patience. We'll run this through mid October, I think. By then, because I don't want to keep doing it when supplies run out, right? It's that whole as supplies last kind of disclaimer, but um, but good stuff. We did get an email, and I'll leave his name out, but he was uh, it was a critical email of the show that essentially said we're adding too much filler. Uh, we have that little thing at the beginning of the show. There's a little clip from Phil. We added a thing about the taste tests in the middle. Uh, and he was basically saying that he didn't feel like that was good. He wanted all the stuff at the beginning of the show, like all of the public service announcement things at the beginning. I have mixed thoughts about that myself. So I'm just tossing that out on air. If we can get other feedback for that, we could because I get it. He's like, you do it all at the beginning and then you get it out of the way. Um, because he felt like the mid-show break wasn't a break. It was just an annoyance. So I'm just casting that out, cast the net. What do <clears throat> listeners think? think about that i will defend us in saying we don't intentionally add filler at all right 
we sit down and we do it the same way we always have. We do a 45 to 75 minute episode, uh, depending on how the conversation goes. So that hasn't changed at all. I, I don't feel like, well, certainly none of it's intended to extend the length of the episode. If anything, people think an hour is too long, right? So um, we're working on it. And yes, I mean, I could sit down. My work at the university is crazy because of the whole pandemic and everything. It's hard to sit down and go back and revisit, but I should probably pull one or two of those audio things out. Like we never really did take our store online that seriously which is why in fact it's better just to point to fill right to make some t-shirts and and cool stuff like that um so we're giving that some thought um what else let's just go to the the news here i have two little tidbits of news strength and muscle sport news this first one is from let's see Journal of Strength Conditioning Research. This is spanking new from Parea Blanco and colleagues. P-A-R-E-J-A. Parea, I think. Blanco. It's called Time Course of Recovery from Resistance Exercise with Different Set Configurations. And I found this interesting, right? Because we were just talking, Phil, about like your standard dose technique, right? How many total reps in a workout. So that's what they did. They broke it all apart into different sets and reps, and they looked at the recovery. Let's take a look here. Um, it says, this study analyzed the response to 10 resistance exercise protocols differing in the number of repetitions performed in each set. 10 males performed 10 different protocols, and I'm not going to bore you with all of them, but different number of uh, reps per set. They looked at mechanical muscle function and plasma um, markers so you know testosterone gh igf1 the usual kind of anabolic things also creatine kinase which a lot of our listeners know is a muscle damage marker Uh, and they looked at this at several time points from 24 hours pre-exercise to 48 hours post what did what did they find Uh, protocols to failure especially those in which the number of reps performed was high resulted in larger reductions in mechanical force function. So I suppose you could read that as they were weaker longer afterwards. And that remained reduced up to 48 hours post, which seemed to be the end of their time course. Protocols to failure also showed greater increments in plasma growth hormone, insulin-like growth factor 1, and creatine kinase, so more muscle damage, if you will. In conclusion, resistance exercise to failure resulted in greater fatigue accumulation and slower rates of neuromuscular recovery, as well as higher hormonal responses and greater muscle damage, especially when the max number of reps in each set was high. So I thought that was interesting. Probably not that surprising. Uh, If you like high-frequency stuff, I don't know if you want to go to failure then, arguably, right? Um, The flip of that, though, is... If you trash yourself, just wait longer, recover, and do a less frequent kind of training program. What do you think, Phil? Yeah, I mean, that's what we're missing there. That point is that, you know, potentially you have, with that greater damage, you have a greater potential to make progress. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, and that's what's missing in there. Like, if you, you could take it all negatively, like, oh, it's doing a lot more damage. Well, yeah, but that damage is 
potentially creating more progress because we have to damage ourselves to create more progress. But and that's where I mean, it goes kind of along the lines of what I've seen with my here's your dose. I found that the people who what I like having people do, if possible, is the first set of that initial dose, push that first set as hard as you can. So let's say you're doing squats at 315 for 30. We're going to push set number one to right before failure. And then let's say you hit 12. Okay, now we have 18 left. And just do those however you, you know, <clears throat> four, 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 you know, five, whatever. You know, we just break down the rest. So we take one set to near or at failure, and then uh, the rest is just eat your lunch. Okay. You know? So, mm-hmm. And that's where I've seen the most progress over the last, I don't know, hell, I've been doing this for that aspect of training for 12, 13 years. And the people who've, who seem to have progressed the best do it that way. You know, one really hard set and then just eat your fries. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so one at a time. So Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I always gravitated toward, well, I guess usual bodybuilder mentality, right? Lots of intensity techniques, negatives. I would get wrecked and train a body part about every five days, you know. Um, and we've talked about that before, right? Like, Phil, you would even have a Saturday of just whole body destruction, squat, yep. dead, big stuff. And you yep. can make progress like that too, yeah. you know. That's most of my training is one day now, my real training. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, but you know, there's often that also the flip side of the discussion is it's all it, for st- pure strength. If you don't want to be a tissue assassin, right? For pure strength, maybe you leave the the gym with a little bit left in the tank. You don't have mm-hmm. to train to exhaustion. So it's an interesting yep. um, analysis. I don't I don't know what this really adds except there's a it's recording you know getting some measurements down something in the literature to help us have this discussion right about frequency and and failure uh, that kind of stuff um, yeah but part of the new thing is also the level of the athlete and like you said their goals too i mean i'm a bigger fan of if your main goal is some more strength focused and yeah if you add some lean body mass that's a good thing but you're not necessarily number one goal I'll kind of do the inverse of that. Like I'll try to spread everything out initially as much as I can. And even with more physique based athletes, I do this initially because I know it's completely different than anything they've ever done also. And then from there, I'll make it kind of more specialized because I find most of them just probably went a little bit too hard with not enough quality and then just waited way too long to come back again. Mm -hmm. I think there's a tendency to kind of, fall into a seven-day cycle when maybe you could come back day five or day four, but you just seem to always wait till, I'll just wait till the following Monday. <laughs> Monday that, that's is true. bench day. Yep. Right. <laughs> yep. So Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just a, it's an interesting discussion. I think it's a new paper that's recording this, you know, and just getting some blood markers and performance stuff. I suppose if you were all about the neuromuscular um, – the high frequency, low damage thing would be almost more like you see a lot of these Olympic lifting protocols, right? Where they're they're doing two a days and three a days, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not doing any eccentric work practically. Yeah, they're doing mostly concentric work too. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And that way, it's all neuromuscular, and you don't have to worry yep. about the the delays and these other things catching up. You know. So. Yeah. I'm waiting for the article now, based on this research study, for a new way to dramatically increase your growth hormone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that'll be out soon i'm sure yeah <laughs> yeah yep actually well we all know but the stuff on gh usually it's 
if you do intense, rapid kind of sets, yeah, you're probably going to yeah. get more of this sort of stress hormone, in this case, GH release, you know. Um, but uh, the other one I have is uh, nutritional. This is, again, spanking new. This is from uh, the American Society of Nutrition. I, this is sort of, I guess you could argue this is one of my two main groups. Eggs and diabetes. One daily egg, a safe bet, with a question mark. This was this is actually the editorial at the beginning of the journal. And I like these, actually. Even though it's not going to the horse's mouth, they give you a nice synopsis of what's in the journal. But this is from um, Mashid Degan, D-E-H-G-H-A-N. Um, they start off saying, Eggs have long been singled out as a food for restriction in human nutrition. For decades, fear of the high cholesterol content of eggs would lead to elevated cholesterol. Of course, had a lot of big professional groups laying down, you know, um, limits like less than 300 milligrams of cholesterol per day, uh, things like that. Otherwise, you know, oh, if you eat cholesterol, your blood cholesterol will go up and, oh, you're going to get heart disease kind of thing. Mm -hmm. However, randomized trials, animal studies, and mechanistic studies have shown that Ooh. dietary cholesterol has little impact on blood levels, um, blood lipid concentrations. Recent meta-analyses and observational studies show that egg consumption is not a risk for coronary heart disease or stroke. Now, in this issue, they talk about 16 existing cohort studies um, where the authors found that consumption of each egg per day was associated with a 14% higher risk of diabetes. Now, that's interesting, right? Because normally you hear about the heart disease stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it says in analysis by cohort, so drilling down into subpopulations here, the associations were, st associations were statistically significant in the two female nurse cohorts, but not the male uh, health professional cohort. Interesting. Um, hmm. It says a 19% increase in diabetes risk per daily egg was found in the nurse's health study. A 15% increase in diabetes risk for the nurse's health study, too, but only a 7% jump in the health professional's follow-up study. Uh, so the men, presumably. Uh, it says, however, associations differed substantially by geographic region with a significant 18% increased risk per egg consumed in the U.S., but neutrality found in Europe and an 18% lower risk in Asia. So this obviously starts to get to the whole idea of dietary patterns, and you, you can't just look at one food item. Mm -hmm. And they do point out, it says, egg consumption in the U.S. and parts of Europe uh, typically reflects what we would call a quote-unquote Western diet, which is itself associated with higher diabetes risk. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to tease it apart, they say, and I think quite fairly. Uh, interestingly, it says, by contrast, small feeding studies have shown that increasing egg intake uh, to three eggs per day significantly decreases certain inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein. So that's hmm. interesting. In conclusion, moderate egg consumption, such as one egg per day, uh, is a safe and affordable source of high-quality protein that should be included in a diet or can be included um, if you have moderate intake of, you know, a variety of foods. So I think, yeah, in the U.S., you're going to think, think about all the, like, the, the things that we consume, eggs, the ingredients include eggs, right? But it's not just yeah. an egg fried in, you know, Pam or olive oil or something. So. Yeah. 
I don't know. Roughly one out of three people in the U.S. are pre-diabetic. So this this is interesting, right? That eggs could kind of screw with your carb metabolism. Um, yeah. But I also I, I would think a lot of lifters who do this if they're on a ketogenic diet or whatnot, they're probably not eating a lot of carbs anyway. Like if you're leaning heavily into the eggs, um, I don't know. I need to fly to Asia every day when I eat my egg. And fly back, and I'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Diet eggs yep. in Asia only. Yep, right. Because yep. the all the accompanying foods are uh, yep. probably healthy instead of you know yes what we eat here pastries. I don't know. Mike, have you hmm. seen anything with the the uh, diabetes in eggs before, or is it just heart disease stuff? I have not. I'm in my brain. I'm trying to figure out the connection and why that would mm-hmm. be so i have not to be honest yeah the the sex differences too right like the female studies yeah, make it look like also it's like wait harder really yeah harder on women mm-hmm. i don't know why, yeah why would that be it's because yeah. women that women naturally have eggs in their body and men don't so their body accepts the egg oh my Come god <laughs> Science. <laughs> Hashtag science. <laughs> logic of Phil. Yep, the men are rejecting the egg. Oh my god! So, once again. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh. Well, I get. I guess for the the women who listen, maybe you just keep that. You know, keep your eye open, and if we see news on this, we'll keep reporting on it. But. Yeah, when you talk about diabetes risk, of course you're talking about being a poorer carbohydrate handler. Um, but yeah, also, so the worst group would be women in the U.S., right? The least group would probably be like men in the healthier parts of Europe or Asia, I guess. And then people are just going to have to interpret this in different ways. This is these observational studies, right? Damn, you know. Yeah, that's the – and I hate to rip on observational studies all the time, but – Rarely do you ever really figure out what was the reason. And obviously, they're not powered to determine causality and stuff, too. It's just, hey, here's an interesting thing we saw on a population basis. Now we have to do more work to see, one, does that even hold true? And two, what is kind of the mechanism of it? Yeah. They do point out in the, the cohort studies that they were talking about these. Whenever you see, of course, increased percent risk, that's what they're talking about, right? There was no intervention. They weren't feeding right. eggs and then taking measurements. Although there are some of those intervention studies I talked about in here, like the, the C-reactive protein one, I think. Um, but, yeah, they point out you know, the value of these big studies is, of course, their large size, right? Even if it's not causal, you can play with these statistics and get some kind of percent contribution um but yeah the control issues are always going to be there i guess okay um that's about it i just thought we would throw in one paper on um lifting one on diet and then let's go to break when we come back hopefully we'll have a little bit more of a discussion here about goal setting because ultimately everything we talk about depends on this right mike you already said this like well, depends on your goals, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'll I'll tell a little story about how this even uh, came up. But we'll be back in just a minute. Hello, dear ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. 
I don't do it because, I mean, look at me, come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text the Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it, do it now! Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast Airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, In about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture, similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, guys, we're back, and I'm going to use this second to give a shout-out to my training partner, Austin. I just want to say, hey, bud, thinking about you. I'll be again there squatting something heavy today. Uh, Austin's uh, stepmother passed last night, so he uh, is not making it in. Mm-hmm. He, spent time with, he spent time with his dad and his family, and I just want to give him a shout-out because I know he listens to the show every week, so there you go. Wow. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. Oof. Yeah. But. Well, it's good to have some support, you know. Yep. Uh, in fact, that's one of the things we're going to talk about today with the goal setting stuff is support is usually a part of this kind of thing. Um, I said I was just going to tell a quick story to set this up. Essentially, I was talking to an athlete yesterday about um, to the point of goals, right? Like because of COVID, um, there's a lot of sports that are – they're not just about performance on the court or on the field or in the pool right now, but they're almost like, what else can I do? Like we're mostly just lifting now, or maybe it's time to get lighter, like drop some body fat or whatever it might be, or make some gains, you know, um, because the, the team performance is a little bit less emphasized, if that makes any sense. So they're trying to take advantage of this kind of stuff. And so then the, the question came up, like, what is the goal? You know, is it to lose body fat? 
what type of thing can nutrition or training help with? Because in my mind, the skill part, that's on the coach, right? My role when discussing nutrition is how do I provide some type of fuel and building blocks in a structured way. It's a lot like exercise programming, I suppose, right? But then like what's the progression model and a lot of the same kind of things come up. So goals are just a huge, huge deal. Yeah. And But before I even talk about the SMART principle or some of these different acronyms on how to set up goals wisely, I think it's worth mentioning that trans-theoretical model, um, Prochaska model, some people call it. Uh, and that's the readiness to change. Uh, in other words, sometimes people aren't – they're not ready to even make enough commitment, right, to, to start thinking about a specific goal. They're just not even ready. Uh, and maybe this happens less with you, Phil, because by definition, when people come to your gym, they're motivated to make a change, you know, because yeah. they're, they're there. <laughs> uh, Mike, I'm curious about you because, like, for me, when I worked – like if I work in a clinical setting, I've had people in front of me like, I don't know, doctor says I have to be here, you know, for <laughs> obesity or, you know, heart disease, whatever. And you're dealing with somebody who is pre-contemplative, right? They're not even aware. They don't yeah. even appreciate that they have a problem. So why am I going to set goals, right? Uh, and I think this is something we drop the ball with in exercise science curricula around the country a lot is unlike like the dietetics training I did. And sometimes I'm critical of dietitians, that's for sure. But they do talk about this readiness model before setting goals. Um, and we don't really do it that much in exercise settings, at least not as much as we should, in my opinion, right? We just start going into uh, health screening and programming just, you know, before the person even gives a damn. Um, because, of course, exercise training is for all kinds of clinical things. It's not just for for performance but but so mike just to that's a roundabout way of saying what about you like do you ever work with people that are pre-contemplative like they're they don't really even want to make a change or maybe they're maybe they are contemplating you know uh, that maybe there's something they could improve or where are you at with your clients yeah so i would say now i definitely don't on purpose <laughs> I'd say going back to when I worked in the gym and started off, I worked with more of those people. One, because I didn't know any better. <laughs> and then two, starting out, you're kind of at the mercy of you'll take anyone who will pay the little cheesy rate you put out <laughs> mm -hmm. just because you don't have any experience. Um, so what I do now is if I'm working with someone as a one-on-one -on -one online client, most of the time they're pretty well advanced right they've they've got the habit of exercise or nutrition to some degree or at least they're at the point where they're willing to pay a fair amount of money and put in the time and effort to to do it and even then i still make them i only open it up when i have spots which you know as of lately was just recently but usually i only did it twice formally this past year um so i have to wait for a specific time even then they have to usually be on the newsletter first <clears throat> and they have to apply and then after the application, then I'll do a free call with them. And then we get to decide if it's going to work or not. So I kind of filter a lot of people out on purpose and make them jump through more hoops. And then it, it's expensive. It's not cheap. Um, and then for people who are you know kind of a little bit lower down, maybe not quite ready to change, to me that's how I view more 
of the content I put out through the newsletter, maybe some articles, podcasts, things of that nature. Um, it's more content, educational-based. Um, my, my sad reality is of the newsletter, and there's a lot of people who take a lot of action who read the newsletter, I, I write it expecting that they will take action and I want them to, but I also know that they're probably not going to because they're at a different stage and it's also free. There's no skin in the game. Um, so I do most of the stuff to newsletter articles to people who are, yeah, maybe not sure. And hopefully over time, and this has happened, you know, people are on for a couple of years, you can actually use education to kind of push them through the model so they do get to the point where they're kind of ready to take more action. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me that they'd be reading the newsletter. Like if they might not even be aware at first that they've got a problem, let's say, you know, like yeah. lots of belly fat or whatever the problem might be. Um, if you look at uh, like classic textbook stuff, if they're pre-contemplative or they're just starting to contemplate, you tend to do things like, you know, validate their lack of readiness. You don't want to just shame them out of the gate because that's going <laughs> to send them away, <laughs> right? But like explore yourself, like almost like uh, what are the risks of non-action? You know, like if, if you're um, dissatisfied in some way, what are the risks of keeping that extra 20 pounds on your gut, you know, or or continuing to have very low muscle mass or whatever, whatever it might be. But exploring the, the cost of non-action in a non-judgmental way, I think, while you're validating, hey, you've got the steering wheel, man, you make the call, you know, because nobody, none of us want somebody in front of us that's uncommitted and wasting our time. You know, uh, yeah. that, that I always think of that as just awareness, right? You're kind of bringing awareness to. So, for example, lately I've done more with aerobic stuff because I've had a lot more clients and questions about people just can't seem to recover. You know, we do a VO2 max test on them and then the bottom like 15 percent, you know, but beforehand they may not even have known that was a problem because they're not an endurance athlete. They're more of a strength and power athlete. So yeah. once they get some education and realize, oh, well, I haven't done cardio for like 10 years. I don't really like walking. My lifting's all super low rep stuff. Hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should do something a little different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, then I suppose you, you got to sort of prepare them to take action, right? And th so this is what a professional is doing for a client. And those of you who are listening, of course, this could be a you, for you, but this could also be if you're a trainer or you're a coach and you're working with somebody, right? So it, to help them prepare, usually there's stuff like social support. And sometimes it's something even like a distance social support, like this podcast, you know, yeah. uh, or just accountability, you know, having Phil or Mike in front of you, uh, just monitoring you in some way, right? That creates that, not just accountability, but like social support. So you're kind of, it, when you're in that preparation phase, you are, you're going to need some social support, maybe some ideas on problem solving, like what we're going to lay out today with appropriate goal setting maybe people aren't even aware to your point mike like education like i don't even know how to go about setting a goal you know they have this nebulous uh poorly identified goal maybe um so maybe just some ideas on how to do goal setting you know in fact um when i was talking to that athlete just yesterday we were I used the my old arrow model. So when I was doing bodybuilding stuff, and if I had a goal, let's say, to put on 20 pounds, I would draw an arrow up the page. You know, I'd give myself like 20 weeks. Um, 
let's say to make a 10 pound gain or a, I'm not going to gain 20 pounds of muscle in 20 weeks, but essentially you create like a, a realistically long arrow of maybe 16 or 20 weeks. Um, I mean, think about 20 weeks. That's, you're talking about almost half a year approaching half a year. And then you cut it in half. So maybe at the midpoint, it's 10 weeks. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, so you should be halfway to your weight gain goal. If my goal is 20 pounds, then at the halfway point, I better have gained 10 pounds or I am drifting off the rails. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you can cut those halves in half and then you have quarter goals and you get the idea. You just keep chopping this arrow in half progressively and then you get an idea like it might be every several weeks you should have gained two pounds if, you know, after Mm -hmm. two or three weeks. If that hasn't happened, Bro, you better eat more or lift differently. You better adjust something, right? Because you are not going to reach that goal. So I like that it makes the smaller term goals and that kind of stuff. Again, as people are in that action phase, you know, uh, or even like a maintenance phase where they're just, they need reinforcement, right? You you need yeah. feedback, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, well, and that's you know, the weight gain one I have my own thoughts on. But, I mean, <clears throat> that's where it doesn't tend to. I've seen it a hundred times. I'm going to gain 20 pounds in 20 weeks. Mm-hmm. And then after, after 10 weeks, they've gained four pounds Yeah, and <laughs> um, they're screwed. And yep. that's, I really like approaching at least the weight gain part with attack it, get it. What happened? So gain 20 pounds in 10, if your goal is 20 pounds in 20 and then just maintain that, mm-hmm. you know, attack that freaking goal and get it when it's weight gain. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because then potentially if you stay there, Things are going to get better over the next 10 weeks. You know, uh, your body's going to still change. Yeah. You're still in this calorie surplus because you've gained 10 pounds. So you're having to eat to hold on to that 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. But that's a different kind of a different subject. But, uh, no, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, let's face it. This is not linear. You know, Mike's the yeah. Mike's the engineer. He always hates too much talk on linear. <laughs> right. And so yeah. I get it. But, and so you are kind of crashing through. In fact, if we get into like the goal setting itself, we got somebody who's they're taking action and you know, they're already yeah. with us and they're taking action. The whole idea of that smart principle, right? Which is specific, measurable, uh, attainable, uh, relevant, and then time-based, right? Or time limited. Those are all really good things. And I think in the sciences, we naturally want to observe and record, you know? So a lot of this stuff, when I was in dietetics training early on, there seemed to be this, like it was an epiphany for some of the people around me that they're going to make, they were going to monitor and record. And I'm like, that's what, that's all we do in science is monitor and record. Yeah. You know, I mean, it would only make sense that you want to periodically get someone off the, on the scale if their goal is weight gain or, or maybe it's fat loss, you know. Yeah. But to your point about like um, crashing through in a nonlinear way, um, that whole idea in the smart principle of realistic, I always liked setting the goals you could crush like you want to build confidence you know if your goal is 40 pounds in 20 weeks i don't know dude good luck you know yeah. uh instead you you create stuff that you're probably going to crush and if you crush it earlier on that's going to be a reward and a uh, motivator i would think yeah. right because you're like i am i am crushing it man yeah you know and then you can move on that's having sub goals and things like that and i can tell you like right after you sent me this topic the two biggest things that i hit on because like you said generally i have very goal-driven people come into me anyways um the biggest things i see is you know everybody wants to be ed Cohn or 
uh, Dorian <laughs> Yates. Everybody has that idea in their head. Yeah. The problem, the biggest, the first problem I see is they don't have a realistic view of where they are, where they're starting at. So, and that's like me. Like if I'm driving to visit Lonnie in Columbus and I need to make a map to get there, well, I better know if I'm in Topeka or New York. If not, I'm going to head the wrong way. Yeah. So it's it's really the step one is right after figuring out I want to do this, it's okay, where am I realistically? Baseline. You know, do yeah. I have, do I have, do I need more cardio? Do, what do you need to be Ed Cone? You know? mm-hmm. What does he have I don't have? You, you know, and then once you realize where you actually are, now you can set a goal. And most people have no clue where they are. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them are way, they think they're way ahead of where they are. Um, which screws them up because then they're training in a much more advanced way than they're ready for. Um, so, or, or vice versa. But, and then the next one that's huge is, especially if you have lofty goals, like be an Ed Cone or be a Dorian Yates, that looks neat. It looks really fancy. Everybody wants to be him until they get in his shoes and you realize <laughs> all the negative aspects that the he cost. had to go through, the cost. Yep. And, and you got to sit down and write these down and realize them and then do one of two things. Accept them and go for the goal or don't accept them and realize that it's not for me. Um, because any lofty goal is going to have massive, massive negatives to it. And you better sit down and accept those because you're going to run into them. Um, like if you want to be the world's strongest man, let's all be honest here. You better be prepared to do a lot of drugs. It's just uh, it, honestly, and some people don't think that. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Things like that. You, or if you want to be Mr. Olympia, yeah, especially you know, bodybuilding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're just gonna have to if you want to make that level. Now, if you don't want to, that's okay. Let's change your goal. Right. Let's be the best. You know, find somebody who's done it, and I'm gonna be as good as him. You know, as good as that guy that did did it under the circumstances. I'm willing to do it under. Right. Yeah. And a lot Dude, of people don't do that. The, oh. I wish I had a quarter for every time somebody said, I want to be a pro bodybuilder. Or it's like, exactly. okay, oh, yeah. how about how about you win a non-national qualifier? How about we make that yeah. your like a, a sub-state level show, yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, yeah, that's the R, I suppose, the realistic part. But you, you touched on something that I think exercise phys people do very well, coaching and exercise science and is – baseline assessments right how like you said if you go to the doctor she doesn't just put you on all these meds she takes some information down you know signs symptoms like she does um a physical or an assessment of some kind maybe blood work but if you yeah because if you don't know where you are how can you quantitatively progress right so the m in smart is measure it bro (laughs) And if you don't do initial assessments, and that's the problem, I think, with social media. You know, you get on YouTube and it's like, get on my program, get on my template. It's like, wait, you have no idea who you're even talking to, right? Yeah. Where are they? Um, Yeah. So, yeah, and I suppose different assessments can be clever and everybody's going to have their own thing that they like to measure probably. Yeah, or even people that come up and they're like five, eight. 130 pounds and they want to be Brian Shaw. It's like, dude, <laughs> you're going to need to be 6'7 and 250 untrained. You know, right. it's not in the cards. <laughs> you know? No, that's right. Uh, Hands like catcher's you know, mitts and yeah, wrist the size of my not, biceps. It's not you. And I don't know how many people I have that do that. It's like they come in and I want to be this. Uh, you're not built for it. And I can't change that no matter what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, so. But 
you'd be giving them the social support to maybe choose something they can crush. Yes, you know? exactly. Let's find something you can be good at and naturally and go for that. And I have people that I have people I train for things they are naturally not built for because they love that thing. And I'm okay with that, but I make them realize that you realize you're not built for this. We can do it. Um, mm-hmm. But you're fighting your own genetics, and right. that's okay, just as long as you know that. Yep. So, yeah, if I wanted to be a center in the in, in the NBA, that's not in the cards for me. I'm five nine, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> or even to your point, right? Like powerlifting. Pretty early on, I'm like, listen, I have really little joints. I'm not a huge dude. Yes, could I have progressed in strength? Sure. Um, but that's not what I was really best at. You know, exactly. like I I don't. You know, at my best, I think I could bench a little over 300 pounds. You know, the listeners are probably laughing, but, you know, like three and a quarter sloppy bench <laughs> in the off season. That's that's not really setting a picture that I'm going to be really good at this. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and the thing is, too, even if somebody's goal is different, like I have one lifter in that comes to my mind whenever we talk about this. She came to me and wanted to be a CrossFitter. She was built to be an Olympic weightlifter. Like she puts on weight really easy. She's small up top, huge legs, huge butt. And, you know, so running was a chore. And, you know, I was like, okay, that's fine. But I kept throwing in weightlifting mm-hmm. and kept teasing towards that. And nice. what you find out is if you get somebody doing what they're naturally gifted at, yeah. they start to really like that because they're naturally good at it. Reward. Even, though if, even if that wasn't their goal, they're like, oh, man, this is easy for me mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in relative terms. So, and that's where I, you know, I'll feed them that stuff. It's like, okay, we'll train you for this, but how about we try a little bit of this? And yeah, usually after time they realize, even though they fought it initially mentally, that, hey, man, I'm really good at that. And what I'm good at, I like doing. People like doing things they're good at, mm-hmm. you know, yep. in general. And that can be a pro yeah. or a con, you know. But, yes. Yeah. Yeah. My buddy Adam Glass, he, he said that to a lot of people he was training. He's like, isn't it just more fun to do things you're better at? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it yeah. was funny, and I'd be in the gym with him when he's saying this to clients, and the look on the client's face is just utter shock of like, oh, like no one said that to me before. I never thought of this, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. There was a, a joke. I, I don't know where I saw it. It, it, it. YouTube or a movie or something, and the guy says, you know that thing you're just really not good at? Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, because otherwise you're just going to you're going to feel this sense of failure, like you're working your ass off and you're you're just yeah, you're not programmed genetically or otherwise to really get very far in that direction. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. And like Phil said, I think that's fine as long as you one understand the cost, have a realistic mm-hmm. output or expectation of where you're at. And if you still enjoy it, then, hey, that's great. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's like I love kiteboarding, but I don't currently see in 3D. So trying to jump over 20 feet where you don't know where you're at in the air is probably not the best thing. (laughs) Right. But it's super fun when you don't kill yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Now, uh, Mike, as far as like, um, I guess the S in smart, like specific or, or the M in measure as measurable, what are some of the things that you like to get down for people? Obviously it's going to depend on their, their goal, but again, we're, we're helping them set this goal, yeah. Um, what do you like to measure? Because I know your engineering mind, you're always thinking about, you know, I don't want to say gadgets. Sometimes it's just, you know, multiple variables to lay down some kind of baseline. How do you do that? 
Yeah, so for me, it just starts with what I'm going to look at in an assessment. So what Phil was saying, what you guys were saying too, is probably two years ago, I radically changed the assessment I did. I, I gave myself the luxury of having an entire week to do an assessment. So everything from, you know, maybe a max lift or a rep lift to breathing stuff to some aerobic bioenergetic stuff. And again, it depends on what the client's goals are. Um, if they're like going to be a CrossFit athlete, then probably going to be seven days of testing, which is going to be pretty horrible because we have to do all the bioenergetic stuff too, in addition to lifting. If you're just mostly a physique athlete, eh, a couple of lists, a few breathing things, a couple of their movement assessments, and maybe a VO2 max and you're good to go. So I think the assessment will start off with the things that I, I want to measure that I think will drive them closer to their goal. And then based on the assessment, we'll kind of determine ideally based on physiology what would be best for them so i'll literally write out a plan that's 100 percent only based on physiology so for example if i have a physique athlete who has a very low vo2 max and has a hard time recovering maybe has had some interesting diet practices in the in the past which is super super common unfortunately mm-hmm. um, i probably know that i need to work on more of an aerobic base initially so that they can actually do more lifting and recover the downside is they didn't not really pay me for that, you know, so how much they can tolerate on that from a psychology side, mm-hmm. that's where it gets a little bit tricky. And that's where you have to have a discussion and, a, you know, kind of a compromise, you know, so a lot of times I'll just split it in half and be like, okay, you're going to lift, you know, three, four days a week, we're going to make it complete rest, we're going to have it be a little bit more performance based to start. And then you're going to do some, you know, aerobic stuff on the other days. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it, I think, comes down also to understanding and explaining why you're doing it. And I also found by having an assessment, I can go back and look at that and be like, hey, here's where you are at for normative data. <clears throat> so even if this isn't related to your goals, if you're in the bottom 20% for, you know, aerobic fitness and you know, especially you're getting older, just from a pure health standpoint, that's something you probably should consider, right? Just like if you had a high blood pressure, high glucose, you know, whatever it is, different factors to look at that. And then you can test them as you go along. You know, it depends on the time frame, but I may test anywhere between six to 12 weeks and show that, hey, you are making progress. So that's good. And then you're looking for how does it transfer to their main goal? Oh, yeah, I can actually do, you know, four or five sets of an exercise. And Two days later, I feel pretty good. Or when we started, it was four days later, I still felt like crap. All right, so once they see that transfer to their goal, now they're a little bit more uh, bought in. And the last part on that, too, is if you get really fancy, you can actually do submax testing. So almost every session they do, to me, is some form of testing, even though it's submax. Right. So each time they do their check-in, I'll go through, look at all their lifts, look at everything that they have. And just kind of like to see, are they making progress? Are they going in the right direction? And then things like heart rate variability, sleep data, will kind of tell me the cost that they're paying to do that. So if their performance was still on par, but their HRV shows that their stress level is absolutely crazy, hey, that's cool. There's Their performance is good. I'm going to probably start a taper or deload much earlier and cut them off there versus well, performance was still good. HRV shows that they're not really that stressed. Great. We're going to have them do more volume. We're going to be able to add more to their system at that point. Right. Some kind of overload. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, it's just so individual to each person, too. Yeah. I think that's yes. the hardest part about oh, being right. online. 
Right. If That's... you don't have any metrics or anything you're looking at, you you can't watch the person, you can't watch them move, you can't see their mannerisms, you can't listen to the tone of voice, their posture. Mm-hmm. All the other cues, I think, that good coaches subconsciously just do all the time. Mm-hmm. You don't have any of that online. At best, yeah. you'll get a video once in a while, which they think is the – they're not going to send you their crappy list right away either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. usually like the best-looking ones. Yeah. yeah. That's why templates drive me nuts, man. You know, there, yes. there's no individual. There is an art, yeah. you know, to the psychological. Everything is biopsychosocial to me. Yep. And like you're talking about starting with the physiology, um, and you're also talking about a number of weeks there. So let's just finish this up with uh, the like the R and the T in smart, like realistic and time limited. Um, contests do that p- quite well, Phil. So I thought I might ask you, like, is is that a way oh, that yeah. you build in a goal? Because put your name on the dotted line, and the contest is X weeks. For sure, out. it is. I mean, like I've talked about this a lot of times. I mean, I've seen it every time. Like with every athlete I have, the minute we sign a sheet and you have to do this at this time in front of all these people, shit gets real. and people take it a lot more serious and all of a sudden training has a bigger meaning now now it comes down to the individual again some people take that really well i have a few people that fold you know some people don't take that well and they stress over it and they do worse like i have one lifter in specific in my head that uh like he'll kill it and then the minute we sign up for a meet oh yeah it goes downhill um and then it goes back to the, you know in that same line, it's it's knowing the individual and after all the testing's done and the you know finding baselines, um, like you talked about it earlier, a lot of people are driven by small realistic goals they can crush, mm-hmm. and then there's other people like myself, and I've always been this way, and I don't know why. I really like setting up very lofty goals, um, like there's a good chance I won't make it there goal. Um, I like that because what I've noticed is even though I will fight for that and I don't mind if I don't get it, I think I can, you know, I get myself in a mindset where I'm going for this and I'm going to get it. And I really think I can get it. And even if I don't, what I found out is I get a lot further than I would have if I didn't. You know, like if I set the goal tomorrow to squat a thousand pounds, I'd probably squat nine and I'd be really freaking happy. You know, even though I didn't make it to ten, a thousand, I squatted nine hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, but I, I'm, I'm also built in a way that I, I recognize and I celebrate the small victories along the way. Right. So it's getting somebody to set a lofty goal and then celebrate the ten pound and the five pound and yep. the twenty pound jumps. Yeah. And realize that holy crap! And I do this in business and everything. Like I have big lofty goals for my businesses, and what's happened? I mean, I went from a low five figure business to a mid six-figure business mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and i'm not where i want to be but holy shit i've made it a long ways right yeah you know? or actually seven-figure business sorry but um whatever it's uh so it's figuring out that type of person do i need to set low goals that they can just and not even talk about where i want them where i think they can get until you know okay let's chip that goal away celebrate it big make another one celebrate it big you know or can i go ahead with this person and we're going Brian Shaw with you. I think you could be Eddie Cohn. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's something you think they possibly could do, and just go right for the big goal. Get that in their head, and then look what you did. You added twenty pounds. You added forty pounds. We're on a way. Let's keep going. You know, 
some people can't handle that because they keep their eye on that end too much and they're stressing about that whereas right. i can i can know where my end is but i can i have the ability to celebrate the small ones along right. the way short-term goals we did a we did an episode yeah. on sub goals i think actually my brother and i were like that before we we really <clears throat> kind of blew past a lot of people in my little hometown gym because yeah. we kept we kept holding ourselves to a national standard right yes exactly. and, and yeah. now there's no way because of the decisions i was willing or not willing to make that i was going to be like win the nationals, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just with drugs, yeah. frankly, and all that kind yep. of stuff. Yep. Um, but I, so m- my goal would be like, I always wanted to be like completely in shape at like 210 and then dehydrate down and barely make the top of the light heavyweight class, you know, and compete like at a level just below the nationals, maybe, you know. I never quite got there, but I was able to compete around like the low 190s, you know, and yeah. at my height, that was. That's way further than I would have gotten if I was yeah. happy with the being the big fish in the small pond, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if you if you you know, if you if you're 10 years old and you aim for the NFL, you'll probably make college ball. <laughs> right. Yeah, there you go. And freaking be happy. Look what I did, you know. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And if you have the opportunity go to if it's a national or world competition or whatever, like even if you're only there as a, a spectator, like go to it earlier than later to kind of mm-hmm. know what that looks like and know, you know, some of the lifts. This is easier than ever now with the Internet and stuff. Yeah. But um, like, you know, Jody and I did a competition for grip in Finland last year. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in all honesty, I didn't get invited there on my grip strength prowess. I knew the guy running the meet <laughs> and said, hey, we'll go to Finland. Yeah. <laughs> And he's like, yeah, come on in and just, oh, you should compete too. I'm like, okay, sure. Really? You know, yeah. uh, you know, people in the 175 weight class were beating me, but that's okay. Yep. You know, cause you have that experience, you know what it looks like, you know, what loads people in your class were competing. And I think that goes a long way to give you that realistic yes. component also, mm-hmm. and to get at least a little bit of experience of, of what it's like to be there too. Right. Yeah. Definitely the R in smart. If you don't go watch, how can you know what's what's a career yeah. goal? Even yes. if it's a career goal, you know, which is even, yeah. like Phil said, even beyond the, the short and long term, super long term career aspiration, oh. you know, yeah. um, it, it can be a motivator, well, you know. Yes. And there's also something to be said about uh, go in, compete, compete against what you want to be and get your ass kicked. You, oh, will, yeah. learn, you will learn a ton, <laughs> you know. Like any yes. fighter out there that's great, I don't know, I can't think of one, but they got their ass kicked a lot more times than they kicked ass. And that's how they learned. <laughs> you know? Uh, I've stepped on platforms, and you know, early on, I got ruined by my competition. Mm-hmm. But you know what happened? It's I knew what I wanted to be then. Right. And I I watched and I learned from the people actually doing it. Yeah. You know, so. And most of the time, those people are, like, super helpful. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. You, you think that they're like high performance yeah. a holes, and a lot sometimes, but and, and this might be worse than bodybuilding, right? But uh, there's there's been more than once I was on stage. I'm looking left and right, and these guys are, you know, they're using GH. Their skin is like pink cellophane. They're like one percent fat. You know, they're huge. They're a head shorter than me at the same weight. You know, but I, I kind of came to that again. That awareness, like, dude, you look fantastic. You know, you're making some decisions I couldn't make, but you get this idea. And, and in fact, one of them in particular, 
just such a class act. You know, he's got his kids up on stage when he wins the overall, you know, in the in the event and everything. And I mean, happy to tell people real specific with everything, how he trained, what he used in on multiple levels, you know, but just like transparent family guy, you know, and it's refreshing that that that's there. You know, you can't just automatically I think that the lay public makes certain assumptions about these guys and often they're wrong. You know, they're yeah. just they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The last quick comment I had too with, with Phil's lofty goals is I then transfer that into what is making that part of your identity because I think that's going to have the most mm-hmm. leverage from a long term. So I have a little thing that I try to write out you know, most days. That has like my top, you know, right now I have seven goals on there. And then I write them out in a way that's in the future tense. So, for example, the first one I have is, you know, I'm someone who rose 500 meters in one minute, 32 seconds at 450 average watts. So it's writing it that mm-hmm. I am someone who the this is part of my identity. It's mm-hmm. not saying that I've already done this. It's saying that I have the capacity in order to do this. And then it has the specifics of what's actually measurable to know what the end actually is. And that allows you then to have measurable sub goals in order to get to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Own it kind of thing. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's face it. All of us, if, if, we, if somebody said, who are you? Most people immediately talk about their job. Uh, and I know part of what Phil does with the lifting is is also his job, uh, one of two major things, I suppose. But you get my point mm-hmm. is we, we would yep. probably all self-identify as, yeah, I'm a lifer, weightlifter guy. You yep. know, yeah. um, it's just a fact. And after this yep. many years, that's not even up for debate. Nobody's going to convince no. me otherwise. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, I think that's some good yeah. stuff about, you know, yeah. again, preparing to make a goal and then how you actually wisely make a goal you know, I really think, honestly, working with someone like you guys, um, that's what gives you that realistic uh, rate of change. You know, the worst thing I see people do is they try to they try to accomplish some absurd goal in 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. And yes. we we just need to have the patience and you got to work with somebody who knows, you know, or like yeah. Mike said, go watch and start to understand how long some of these take. Because, yeah, you mm-hmm. might you might find yourself choosing a different goal. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's that's probably the biggest piece of advice I have too. Is that it's going to take longer than what you think, mm-hmm. and you want to at least have someone guide you through what are the potential costs up front. Mm-hmm. Because I think the downside of the smart goals is you can torch yourself and not realize it to try to make something that maybe wasn't your big goal. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people spend enough time thinking about like Phil was saying, and you were saying too, Lonnie. What is the cost I am willing to pay for this? And that's an individual decision. Everyone has it to is. make their their own decision of what they want to do. Oh, but yeah. knowing that up front is super, super helpful. Yes, it is. Yeah. You no see, right or wrong answer. That's yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, you, you see the rich guy or the pro bodybuilder, you don't know what went into that. <laughs> <Yeah>. no, <laughs> All no you idea. see is this, this <laughs> superhero, you know. Yeah. Yep. Right on. All right. All right. All right good stuff. Go yep. We'll see you. See you later. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. 
Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.